here's what we know. We have been entrusted with an offensive gospel that offends the very core of sinful humanity. And we've been told to defend it, display it, and declare it to the ends of the earth, no matter the opposition we may face. And that will mean that this will be hard, uncomfortable, and that it will require sacrifice. But we're reminded that King Jesus is with us every step of the way. This is what Paul lives and is reminded of in our passage this morning as we encounter the circumstances surrounding his second defense of the gospel in this closing section of the book of Acts. And so I want to read this morning from Acts 22, beginning in verse 22 and continuing through verse 11 of chapter 23. Up to this word, they listened to Paul. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came to him and said, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. But Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope in the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. 
For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would be with us now as we continue in a spirit of worship. We seek to not only understand what this passage means to us today and how we're to apply it, but Father, we are dependent on your spirit to use your word now to sanctify us, to make those of us who know you by faith look more like your son Jesus for your glory. So we pray that you do that, Lord. We lay ourselves before you and pray that your word would instruct and challenge and correct and that we might look more like your son as a result of what is here and that that might bring glory to your name. And Father, we pray for those among us who are investigating the claims of Christ, have never trusted in Christ alone as their only hope for rescue from the judgment they deserve because of their sin against you. Father, we pray that you would make the gospel real to them, that you would use the proclamation of the gospel and in particular Paul's defense of the gospel here as the means by which you draw them to faith in your son Jesus Christ so that you might reclaim for yourself another worshiper this morning. Do all of this, Father, for your own glory, for you deserve it. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this passage, I want to divide it up into three sections and cover each of them, seek what we, see what we can apply from each of these sections. First, as we see, Paul asserts his citizenship, that he's a Roman citizen. We want to look at that first. Then we have the, the story about how uh, Paul defends the gospel a second time. We said that there are several gospel defenses in this closing section of the book of Acts. We looked at the first one last week. This is the second one. And then finally, we're going to look at verse 11 by itself and see how Paul was encouraged by the by the very presence of Jesus in his jail cell. So first, let's look at this first section, verses 22 through 29, where Paul asserts his Roman citizenship. What do we learn from this little story of what happens here? Three things that I want us to, to walk away from this section acknowledging. The first is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. The gospel, the biblical gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is offensive to sinful humanity. 
When Paul says at the end of our passage last week in verse 21, when Paul said to the Jews there in Jerusalem that Yahweh's son told him that Yahweh's gospel was something that he was supposed to take to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, we find now that the Jews in response to that lose their ever-loving mind. Look at verses 22 and 23. He said, up to this word, they listened to them. Meaning, at this point, they stopped listening. They closed their ears. No more. That's it. Then we're told that they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune shows up to bring, them, bring him into the barracks. Now, we've already seen their willingness to kill Paul. We saw that last week. They were trying to do that themselves. Nothing has changed. They are still willing to kill Paul. They don't think that he should be allowed to live. And they're shouting. They're throwing off their cloaks. They're flinging dust into the air. All of this in this setting for the Jews was symbolic that they considered what Paul had done and said to be deeply offensive to them. Now, what had Paul done to so offend them? He had shared the gospel with them. He hadn't provoked them. He hadn't said any mean, anything mean or, or unkind or unfair to them. He had simply told them his story. We saw that last week. He said, I was one of you. And I was a sinner. And Jesus showed up to me on the road to Damascus in a blinding light. And he saved me, a sinner. And then he told me to go and tell others that same good news. And that so offended them. That they wanted to kill him. Church, when sinful man is confronted by the biblical gospel, it will offend him because it is offensive to the very core of sinful humanity. And sometimes in that offense, he may respond violently and with hostility. This encapsulates three of the key themes that we've already talked about are central to this closing section of the book of Acts. First, the depravity of man. We, we, we saw that last week. We saw that, see it again this week, evidenced by their willingness to kill Paul. Secondly, the expectation of gospel opposition. Jesus promised it would come, and here it is. But thirdly, and, and, and most importantly for our discussion this morning, we see here the theme of man's inclination towards self-righteousness. And it is this self-righteousness that is rightly offended by the gospel. And Paul knows this. And he expects that it will offend. And he even expects that, it, that their response to this offense may even be hostile and violent. And yet he proclaims it anyway. He does not shrink from proclaiming this offensive gospel. And church, neither should we. 
I think that we can say without any equivocation that our culture today is a good bit more self-absorbed and self-righteous than even the Jewish culture of Paul's day. Self-righteousness, self-promotion, self-advancement. Our world is all about elevating self. Our culture idolizes self. Be yourself. Be all you can be. Have confidence in yourself. An example perhaps might be the pro-abortion movement as it says, don't tell me what I can or can't do with my body, my body, my choice. Never mind the fact that it involves another body, no matter, my body, my choice. It's all about me. Whether it's a well-meaning parent that echoes the mantra of our society when they say to their children, you can be anything that you want to be. Or whether it's the transgender ideologues of our culture who say that we can self-identify as whatever gender we prefer. Both of those are simply lying to ourself. No, you can't be anything that you want to be any more than you can choose your own gender. Our culture has an infatuation with elevating and idolizing self. And church, the biblical gospel dismantles that with one fell swoop. You know, you want to know what the Bible says about self? The Bible says that you are a sinner who has disobeyed the God who made you for his own glory, that you have chosen self over that God, and that as a result, what you and I deserve is eternal judgment from him. And friends, that's offensive. That offends our culture's infatuation with self. You can't choose your own identity. Your identity is that you are a sinner who deserves eternal punishment because of that sin. And knowing that, that, that this news that we're supposed to share to the ends of the earth is so offensive, we might be tempted to either water it down so that it isn't as offensive or just be quiet about it. Because the message might be offensive, but if I never speak it, then I won't offend. So maybe I'll just keep it to myself. And Paul did neither of those. He didn't try to make the gospel more palatable. And he never shrank from proclaiming it, and neither should we. And so our application here is that, is that we should proclaim the biblical gospel that offends regardless of the opposition that we face because of that offense. Don't water it down. Don't try to soften it, its, its offensiveness, by avoiding the issue of sin. Friends, that's not loving. 
It's not loving to withhold the critical news from our friends, neighbors, and coworkers that they are hopelessly lost and deserving of eternal judgment because of their rebellion against God. So we need to love them enough to tell them the truth about their hopelessness and their condition apart from Christ. Parenthetically, this is why the prosperity gospel is so attractive to sinful humanity. Because it avoids any discussion of sin, which, which might offend. And instead of opposing self, it, it feeds self by telling self that you will be wealthy and you will be healthy if you just follow Jesus. And self eats that up. Church, we need to be willing to offend with a biblical gospel no matter how the world might respond. And by the way, what we don't need to do is add our own offense to it. The gospel is offensive all by itself. It doesn't need our help. We simply need to share it, both the bad news about sin and the good news about how Jesus defeated it. Second thing that we learn from this first part of the story I just want to touch on this briefly, is that Paul uses all lawful and peaceful means to defend the gospel. As we said last week, Paul's defense speeches here in the closing section of the book of Acts is not so much about him defending himself as it is about him defending the gospel. And the same is true here. Paul's not simply trying to avoid this flogging that he will receive from the from the centurion after the tribune gave the order for it. Rather, he's trying to ensure that his gospel ministry will continue. He knows that God is not finished with him in his ministry yet, and so he reveals to the centurion that he is a Roman citizen, and it is unlawful for a Roman citizen to receive judgment or punishment without having stood trial. So what's our application from this? I think we too are in a right place to do whatever is lawfully allowed to defend our right to proclaim the gospel. But what's our motive? What's our motivation there? Our motivation is not just because freedom of speech and freedom of religion are written into the Bill of Rights in the first ten amendments to our Constitution, but rather because the Great Commission is written in the Bible. You see, there should be a missional drive behind our defense of religious liberty. As a Christian citizen, it is not simply and it's not primarily about my right to speech, but it's about my obligation to be a witness for Jesus. That is what ought to compel me to defend religious liberty through any lawful means. And then thirdly, the third thing that we see from this first section, perhaps most importantly, and least noticeable as we look at the text is that God's sovereign purpose is always at work even when we don't understand it or see it or notice it. God has an underlying purpose in this final section of the book of Acts. And as the narrative progresses, we see God's sovereign purpose begin to play out. 
But it's underneath and behind all of this narrative all along the way. And what is his sovereign purpose in all of this? He's going to get the gospel to Rome. That's what he's doing. And we see that underneath and behind all that happens. The, the Jews in Jerusalem abjectly reject the gospel. And they reject Paul. So he's going to have to move on from Jerusalem. Paul asserts his Roman citizenship and avoids flogging, which might have otherwise killed him. It was often fatal, this Roman flogging. At the end of this morning's passage, Jesus will explicitly tell Paul, you're going to Rome with the gospel. In the coming weeks, Paul will be detained and stand trial first before Felix and then before Festus. And with Festus, he, he appeals to Caesar. And then he goes before King Agrippa. And a King Agrippa will tell him, this, this Paul guy is actually innocent. And he could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But because he appealed to Caesar, within the sovereignty of God's plan, he must go to Rome. God is at work underneath and behind all of this, accomplishing his sovereign purpose. See, God had promised that the seed of Abraham, which we know was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, would one day be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, all the families and all the nations of the earth. And Rome was a critical step in the fulfillment of that promise. And so what was God doing? He was getting the gospel to the nations by getting Paul and the gospel to Rome. And underneath and behind all of what we see here and in the coming weeks, God is working to accomplish his sovereign purpose. You know, we often talk about God's sovereign purpose and how it's for our good and God's glory. But we usually talk about his sovereign plan with respect to suffering, persecution, or something that's happening that we just don't understand. But here we see his sovereign purpose through a missional lens. Paul is being a faithful witness in Jerusalem, and he faces hardship as a result of it but in the end God opens up a whole new mission field for him one that in the moment he had no idea what was happening you're trying to be a faithful witness in your neighborhood in your workplace and you may face opposition you may face roadblocks you may face hardship as a result of that. Could it be that God is working underneath and behind all of that to open up a brand new mission field that you otherwise would not even even known about? I think we can experience this as a church as well. And I think we are. We've been seeking to be faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ in this community for 15 years. 
And now he's leading us to send a third of our precious church family, nearly a third, to a neighboring town to start a new church in Houston. This will be hard for us. This will be uncomfortable. This will be sad for us at times. It'll mean greater sacrifice for each and every one of us. But God only knows what mission fields he's opening up to us as a result. Not just in Jackson County, but here as well. Church, don't think for a moment that God's only purpose in having us plant Antioch Church in Houston is just so that we can have a church gathering geographically closer to some of our families. It's not just about a shorter commute for some of them, and it's not just about eliminating the need for overflow seating downstairs here. God is opening up new mission fields in Jackson County and here. Mission fields that we not, would not have otherwise seen. And we would not have penetrated with the gospel if he had not led us through the hardship of sending out these precious saints. Church, let's trust God in the midst of uncertainty and uncomfortable change, knowing that his sovereign purpose is not only, not only always at play, but it always has a missional component. He's in the process of redeeming sinners back to himself, and he's going to use the church to do it. So his sovereign purpose always has a missional component. Let's get back to our story. This Roman tribune here that we've been talking about, this captain of the, of the army that's stationed there near the temple in Jerusalem, Poor guy, he's still trying to get to the bottom of why the Jews are so hot and bothered about, about Paul. He cannot get to the bottom of what's going on here. He first arrested Paul back in chapter 21. And before taking him into the barracks, he allowed him to speak to the people in the streets. And that didn't go too well, right? Because, because they lost their marbles when, when Paul said that, Yahweh is sending me to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles. So then the tribune decides to have Paul flogged, hoping that he's going to get from Paul as a result of flogging him. He's going to get Paul to finally answer, why is it that the Jews hate you so much and are so upset about him? But Paul asserts his Roman citizenship. And now the tribune's hands are tied. And he's no closer to figuring out why the Jews are so upset about him than he was in the to beginning. So what does he do? Well, now he decides to bring him before the Sanhedrin. This council of Jewish leaders comprised of both Pharisees and Sadducees and headed up by the high priest himself. And he figures that maybe he'll learn something about what's going on here when Paul gives his defense to the Sanhedrin. So he brings him, he sets him before the council, and this is where we hear Paul's second defense. Now, there are two things that happen with Paul in this second section. First, he gets punched in the face. Second, he gives his defense. No sooner does Paul open his mouth to begin his 
defense, and he's slapped in the mouth. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 23. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. Now, the high priest is simply acting out of his own self-righteousness, the same self-righteousness that we've been talking about. He thinks he's being zealous for God when in fact he's simply giving an unlawful order to those who are standing by Paul. But what I want us to focus on is how Paul reacts to this in verse 3. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now, Paul is right in asserting that the high priest has given an unlawful order. Paul is also right in pointing out the hypocrisy of the high priest here. But Paul is wrong in pronouncing a curse on him and insulting him and calling him names. And I say that because of what comes next in verses 4 and 5. Those who stood by him said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, scholars are somewhat split on exactly what's happening here. Some will say that this is sarcasm. Paul is being sarcastic here and referring to the high priest with insulting irony that that he's the ruler of the people. But I don't think sarcasm fits the situation here. Rather, I think we take Paul at his word that he didn't know that it was the high priest who gave this order. Maybe he didn't hear the command. Maybe he didn't know who gave it. We know that Paul's eyesight was bad. Maybe he didn't see him, didn't recognize him. Maybe Paul had been gone so long from Jerusalem, and he had, that he didn't know who the high priest was at this point. But regardless, I think the tone of verse 5 from Paul is confessional rather than sarcastic. He's confessing. Hey, hey, I'm sorry. I, I didn't know that he was the high priest. Because to say what I said against the high priest is unlawful and wrong. And I shouldn't have done it. That's what I think is going on here. And, and because of that, there are a couple of takeaways from that that I want us to touch on. First, in defending the gospel, we need to be gentle and respectful. As we mentioned, the gospel will offend because it is an offensive message. But that doesn't mean that we should proclaim it in a way that is overly harsh, disrespectful, or mean-spirited. Remember the two passages we quoted from last week. First, from the lips of Paul himself. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, because God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And the second, from the lips of Peter, in 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And what we have here is Paul breaking those principles. He loses his temper. He lashes back. He insults and he name calls. And while part of us may understand why he did this, why he responded in this way, after all, all he said is up to this point, I've led my life before God in good conscience, and he gets punched in the face. But while we may understand it, Paul's response here, his reaction is sinful and wrong. And what we have in verse 5 is his confession to that effect. So on the one hand, this should be a reminder to us that Paul's not always the guy that we should follow. And we shouldn't follow his example in this respect, but rather, in defending and proclaiming the gospel, we ought to do it with gentleness and respect. Even with those to whom we are defending it are not gentle or respectful to us. But on the other hand, I don't know about you, but there's an odd sort of encouragement here knowing that Paul didn't do this perfectly. Paul messed up. He had indwelling sin just like we do. He fought against his flesh, his sin nature, just like we do. And knowing that he messed up helps to remove the expectation and the pressure of us doing it perfectly because we know that we won't right we know that we won't we haven't and the reality is there is grace for when we don't do it perfectly so here's the takeaway there is grace for our sins and so don't let your sin keep you from pressing on in mission There's grace for your sin. There's grace for my sin. And in particular here, I'm speaking with respect to our sin, with respect to proclaiming and defending the gospel. Whether our sin in that regard is like Paul's here, where we lose our temper and we lash out and we trade insult for insult and we damage our witness, or whether our sin is the sin of silence. And we don't say anything. And we keep the gospel to ourselves. Both are sin. And when we sin in these ways, friend, there is grace found in the cross of Christ. And so let's confess those sins because there is grace for those sins because of what Jesus did at Calvary. And because of this grace... We ought not to allow those past sins and even the potential for future sins in this regard to keep us from pressing on in mission, to keep proclaiming and keep defending the gospel. Paul didn't let it stop him. He he didn't stop here and say, you know what? I am such a poor witness for Christ. I should just stop. I just shouldn't do it anymore. No, he pressed on. He continued proclaiming and continued defending the gospel. 
He understood that he was a sinner and he would never do this perfectly. He had just written 2 Corinthians, maybe a year, year and a half prior to this. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he wrote about how God had given him and us who follow Jesus the light of the gospel. And that we're to take that light of the gospel to the nations. But then Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. But we have this treasure, this this gospel, we have this treasure in jars of clay, earthen vessels with cracks and imperfections all throughout it. Why, he says, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. And so he keeps proclaiming the gospel. He keeps defending the gospel, knowing that he will mess up at times. Why? Because he's a jar of clay just like we are. He's an earthen vessel with with, with cracks and and mars and imperfections. And it's not always going to go perfectly. And he doesn't say that to justify or excuse his sin, but rather he says that to show that the surpassing value, the surpassing power belongs to God and not him. Friend, there is grace for your sin So don't let your sin, in these respects, keep you from pressing on in mission. The second thing that happens in this section, he gets slapped in the face, struck in the mouth, and then secondly, he provides his second defense speech. Now, this is probably the shortest speech ever given. It is not a very long defense speech. We find it within part of verse 6. Look at verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part of this Sanhedrin were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So what's he doing? He lights a fuse and he throws the firecracker right in the midst of the council. And it does exactly what he expected it to do. It blows up. Luke tells us what happens. A great clamor arose between the Pharisees with whom Paul has just identified himself and the Sadducees with whom he has not identified himself. And this clamor arose because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection while the Sadducees didn't. And so all of a sudden, instead of fighting against Paul, they're fighting amongst themselves. Now, I don't necessarily advise this as an evangelistic strategy to light a fuse and let the sparks fly. But I think there are a couple of things happening here. One, Paul is peeling back the curtain on their own inconsistencies. They're sitting in judgment of Paul over something about which they don't even have agreement among themselves. And he's showing them this. But secondly, I think the way Paul, uh, the way Luke writes this story, the way Luke tells this story, I think it's, in, it's clear that Paul is intentionally taking advantage of the fact that when he talks about the resurrection, it's going to get them fighting amongst themselves instead of fighting him. Now, what Paul says is true, and he means it. He believes it. It is because of the hope of the resurrection that he's standing trial here. 
Paul's hope is the resurrection, that because of Jesus' resurrection, we who have faith in Jesus will likewise one day be resurrected also. And while the Pharisees do not share Paul's belief in Jesus' resurrection, they do believe in the resurrection from the dead, which for them is life after death, the hope of life after death. But for Paul, in this instance, I don't think this is just a gospel truth. This is a gospel fuse. And he knows that when he lights it, it's going to blow up. So the question is, why does he do it? Well, number one, as we said, because he believes it. It's because of the hope of the resurrection that he's here. But secondly, I suspect that by this time, Paul's beginning to piece together what God is doing. He's going to get him to Rome. At the end of the book of Romans, that Paul wrote while he was on one of his previous journeys, Paul wrote about his plans, his desires, his intentions to go to Rome. He wants to preach the gospel in Rome. He wants to encourage the church in Rome. But he notes to them that first he needs to take this offering that the Macedonian churches had collected to the church in Jerusalem. But what Paul does not anticipate as he's writing the book of Romans is that when he gets to Jerusalem, he'll be bound, chained, and imprisoned. But I think at this point in the story, Paul's beginning to put two and two together. And he realizes what God is doing. God's going to get him to Rome. But it's going to be in chains. And so when he realizes that the Jews just flat out are rejecting the gospel... They won't even listen to him anymore. The door to the gospel is being shut. When he realizes this, he lights a fuse, and the violent chaos that ensues ends up delivering him from that scene. And that's exactly what happens. The tribune sees that this plan to have Paul address the Sanhedrin backfires on him, and he's worried that they'll tear Paul to pieces and so he has him brought back into the barracks and I think that's what Paul was hoping would happen in lighting that gospel fuse I'm not entirely sure what application to bring from this but I recall Jesus's words to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount when he said don't cast your pearls before swine Pigs don't appreciate the value of pearls. So it's a waste of time to try to convince them of the value and preciousness of pearls. Because in the end, they'll just trample on them and then turn on you. Church, as we share the gospel, if we find ourselves in a situation where folks are obstinate in their rejection of the gospel, refuse to even genuinely hear it, shut the door. There comes a point where it is a better use of our kingdom efforts to move on and take the gospel to those who are ready to hear it. I didn't say don't share the gospel with them. But if they demonstrate that they have shut that door and they will not listen anymore, then move on 
Stop casting pearls before swine and take the gospel to those who will hear it. So Paul's taken back into the custody, in, into the barracks. And what happens that night? Jesus shows up to him. In verse 11, we now get this look at how Paul was encouraged by the presence of Jesus and how we can be as well. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The final application I want to bring, give to you from this passage is that the Lord is with us to encourage, commend, and commission. We're told that Jesus stood by him, which tells us this was no trance, this was no vision, this was no dream. This was the real presence of Christ with Paul in the barracks. He was standing by Paul. And the first thing that he says is take courage. Why is that the first thing that he says? Probably because Paul was discouraged. Paul had lots of boldness and courage during the day. But at night, all alone, by himself, in that cell, his courage began to wane. Maybe he was thinking about his failure earlier in the day. Man, I just blew it, blew my witness. I lost my temper. Discouraged and defeated, but not alone. Because Jesus was with him. And the presence of Christ in our lives is what gives us the courage to continue to be bold and faithful in our witness for him. So if you find boldness and courage in your witness for Jesus waning in your life, friend, carve out some more time and margin in your life to spend time with Jesus. And take courage from his presence in your life. He's with you. Second thing that Jesus does, he commends Paul for his faithful witness in Jerusalem. He says, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. If Jesus didn't think that Paul's witness for him in Jerusalem wasn't commendable, then he wouldn't have used it, set it up here as the standard that he would expect from Paul when he sends him to Rome to be his witness. Jesus commends Paul for his witness in Jerusalem. Despite his failures, despite his imperfections, he commends him. And then finally, he commands him, he commissions him to take the gospel to Rome. Jesus isn't finished with Paul. He's got more work for him to do. And Jesus isn't finished with us, church. He's got more work for us to do. Church, just as Jesus was with Paul to encourage, commend, and commission, so he is with us to do the same. In Scripture, over and over and over again, whenever God's people are called upon to do something hard, something, 
something awesome, something difficult for God, God always reminds them of his presence with them. As Moses hands the baton to Joshua to cross the river and head into the promised land, he tells them this, be strong and courageous. For you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you, so do not fear or be dismayed. God himself reminds Joshua of this very thing in Joshua 1 verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When King David was dying and leaving the, the awesome task of building a temple for the Lord in Jerusalem to his son, Solomon, he says to his son in 1 Chronicles 28, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And of course, there's the great commission that the Lord gives to you and I. The greatest, most awesome assignment that's ever been given. Talk about mission impossible. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In other words, Take these gospel truths that are utterly and completely offensive to the very core of humanity. Take them and proclaim them to the ends of the earth and make disciples of all nations, all peoples everywhere. Mission impossible indeed. If we were alone. But we're not. And it's as if Jesus anticipates that objection. And so he closes the Great Commission with, and behold, which means see this. Look at this. See this. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Church, it is the presence of Christ in us that gives us the courage we need to be faithful, courageous, bold witnesses for Jesus Christ and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. In Psalm 73, Asaph the psalmist is bemoaning the fact that the wicked are prospering all around him. And he continues to bemoan that fact until the Lord brings him into the sanctuary and reminds him of his presence with him. And then Asaph writes this, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You see, if he's with us, that means that we're 
with him. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let me, let me close with two exhortations. One to two groups of people. First, to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ in this room. You've recognized your sin, that you deserve judgment from God. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You have placed your faith in what he's accomplished on the cross as your only hope to be rescued from what you deserve. Brother, sister, as we seek to be faithful witnesses for Jesus in our community and around the world, Our heart and our flesh may fail. It may fail. We won't do it perfectly. We'll mess up. But God is with us still. And he will be the strength of our heart. And he will be our portion forever. So be encouraged and get back to work. And the other is to those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. To you, friend, your flesh and your heart will likewise fail, just like ours have, just like ours will continue to. But apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you have no advocate before the Father. And if you meet him, having not placed your faith in his Son then he will not be the strength of your heart and he will not be your portion forever. Rather, your heart will just fail because it will have been depleted of any strength. And your forever portion will be an eternity of misery, hopelessness, and judgment. Friend, Jesus, the Son of God, came to save sinners like us from that judgment by taking the judgment upon himself. And so I beg of you, I beg of you to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ, trusting that what he did on the cross, he did for you. By faith, make him your Lord and Savior. And here's my promise to you. He will be the strength of your heart. And he will be your portion forever. Let's pray. Father God, you have in your divine wisdom and sovereign plan seen fit to entrust your people with the good news of Jesus Christ. With this gospel that we know is offensive. And you have told us, you have commanded us to take it to the nations, beginning with our next door neighbors and extending 
to the other side of the globe. And in doing that, Father, there will be hardship, there will be sacrifice, but you have reminded us that you'll be with us every step of the way. And so because of that, we say, Father, use us. Use us however you will. May the remainder of our days, Father, be poured out on the altar of sacrifice for you, your glory, and your kingdom. Use us however you will. And Father, we pray for those among us who have not professed faith in Christ. Father, we ask that you would walk them across the line of faith at this very moment that they would stop trusting in themselves, stop trusting in their good works, that they would be convinced in their heart and soul that your son is who he said he was, and he died on the cross in their place. Father, may you lead them across the line of faith to trust in Christ alone for their rescue. Would you redeem them as a worshiper this morning as they cry out to you in faith? And may you use them like you will use us for your own glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.